Amen. So you turn to uh, the book of Jonah. We'll take a uh, take a few minutes out of. Uh, many of our, our gatherings to explain some of what we do and why we do it, just so um, you as our people are always understanding uh, not only what we do, but the motivations behind it. Um, it's part of our equipping and training our people to know the convictions we have and why we have them. So we practice uh, what was called expository preaching, expositional preaching, uh, which is uh, just a very simple way of, of saying we are trying to expose what the Bible says. It comes from the word expose. We simply want to know what the text means. And it meant something to the original audience, so we take that into account. There are universal timeless principles within that text that apply to all cultures and all peoples that we want to draw out. And then we get more specific in how it applies to us as a people of God living in a city like Monroe in 2015. Uh, we practice sound exegesis, which is another fancy word that simply means to draw out of the text the meaning of the text instead of reading into the text what you want it to say. So um, we don't think of an idea and let's go find Bible verses to support our idea because our people really need to hear this. We just um, we want to preach through the Bible, preach through books of the Bible and let the Bible speak uh, because uh, we have full confidence that when you let the word of God speak, Empowered by the Spirit of God, that God is going to do a work in His people, through His people, to their surrounding culture. And so we, we stand on that. The authority is in the Word. It's not in us. Uh, the, the ideas, the messages are in the Word. It's not our creativity that come up with this. Um, we will do some topical sermons and series like the one we just did on our core values. But even in topical sermons, we're simply seeking to um, uh, learn what the text teaches us that we should do as far as our core values go. Or when we do an Advent series in Christmas. What, was, what does the Bible tell us about how we should celebrate something called Christmas and Advent? Um, we also desire to alternate as we preach through books of the Bible. So we want to do New Testament, Old Testament. So if you were with us earlier this year, we walked through Colossians from January through August when we gathered every other week. Um, now we're walking through the book of Jonah. We'll do four chapters in four weeks. And uh, Lord willing, uh, we will go back to the New Testament in February and walk through one of the Gospels is where we feel like the Spirit is leading us right now. Uh, some advantages to that. It helps us fulfill what the Apostle Paul spoke of when he was talking to the elders of Ephesus, that he did not shrink back from uh, preaching to them, teaching them the whole counsel of God. So when we preach the books of the Bible, we can't avoid hard subjects or hard passages. We can't just preach our, our pet subjects and keep coming back to our pet topics. We have to deal with the text. And so we're going to come across hard, hard passages and, and things that are hard truths, that are hard to hear. And that's, that's good for us. Um, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So one of the reasons we preach through books of the Bible is we don't know every sin, every aspect of brokenness, every uh, idol that, we, that you struggle with, that we struggle with as a people of God. We, we can't manufacture or craft a message that helps every single person in every way they need to be helped. But God knows you. God created you. The Holy Spirit is here with the Word of God. All Scripture is profitable for our good, to equip us for good work. So we trust that whatever passage we're walking through, there is general application, but the Holy Spirit is going to take the Word of God and get very specific with application with each one of us. And we can trust God to do that. 
But that's the kind of father that he is. That's the good dad that he is. And so I hope one day there is a pastor at the Crossing Church who stands to proclaim the word of God and ask you to turn to uh, maybe Obadiah for the, the last sermon series on the last book of the Bible that the Crossing Church uh, needs to walk through to, to say that we've preached through the Bible in, I don't know, 40, 50 years. Maybe beyond my lifetime, maybe in my lifetime, I don't know. Who knows, maybe Titus or Timothy preaching that message, who knows. But um, um, that's the people that we want to be. That's the, the, the people who are of the book that we want to be as we proclaim God's word. Um, those are some of the reasons why we preach the way we do. So just every now and then we're going we're gonna to talk about something we do on Sundays, take five minutes or so to kind of explain why we do what we do. And uh, we'll revisit it probably every three, three or four times a year so that you know. This is why we preach the books of the Bible. This is why we think it's valuable and good and important. So what you should be doing as the people of God is, is you should be studying Jonah for the next four weeks apart from this gathering. So get good commentaries, get good resources, get good books, listen to other people who have preached Jonah, and let Jonah sink deeper into you than just what you get on Sunday morning. And um, let's be changed by how God worked through this prophet. Let's begin the day with chapter 1, Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots in the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to them, said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to go back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, Let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're so grateful that you have graciously chosen to reveal yourself to humanity. You've chosen to 
Do it in a way through, through the word of God that reveals to us Jesus, that reveals to us you, your character, your nature, your attributes, and you've preserved it for thousands of years so that we can sit here today and have full confidence this is the word of the Lord. So let that fall on us as heavy as it needs to fall. Father, we ask that your spirit would cut us as deeply as we need to be cut this morning. And then we ask that your spirit would come through the gospel, through the work and person of Jesus, and bring healing, and bring life, and faith, and trust, and repentance. We thank you that that is what you want to do, and we have full confidence you will accomplish your desires. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. So as much as possible, I want you to really forget that you've ever heard the story of Jonah. In fact, you notice I stopped at verse 16, so I didn't really get to what most people consider one of the main characters of the story. Uh, Kendrick will walk through that part of the story next week. If you didn't know the rest of the story, then you would know that what I've read so far is pretty straightforward. God tells somebody to go do something, they disobey, then they are punished for their disobedience. They suffer the consequences of their disobedience. That's, That's what you think has happened so far. And again, if you didn't know the rest of the story, that that seems to be pretty straightforward. But when you know the whole story, when you look a little deeper into the story and think about it, and the Spirit of God illuminates our minds, there's there's more going on than than what you think may be going on. And so let's let's walk through this. Um, What we do have in chapter 1 is a very clear picture of our biggest problem in each of us, and the biggest problem in our culture, and that is sin. You have a picture of our gracious God who pursues us even in our sin, You have a picture of a variety of ways that people respond to this pursuing God. And finally, you have a picture of God's ultimate solution for our sin. So this message is not for the sinner sitting next to you. It's not for the sinner who's not here, especially them because they're not here, right? It's for you, sinner. For me, sinner. So first thing we see is God commanding this man Jonah to go and preach a very particular message to the people in the great city of Nineveh. It says there in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. A little bit of background on Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah was a man who's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Yes, by Jesus. We'll get to that later on. But also in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, where it says that um, he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. And so Jonah was a prophet to the northern tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel. Just a little bit of Old Testament history. You had three kings of of the nation of Israel. You had Saul, then you had David, then you had Solomon. We pretty much all know those people if you have a Bible background. After Solomon dies, the nation of Israel split in half. Ten tribes to the north, they became Israel. Two tribes to the south became Judah. The northern kingdom was by and large evil and wicked and led by evil and wicked kings. So in 722 BC, God sent the nation of Assyria who are the Ninevites, who lived in Nineveh, to conquer the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, by and large, had, had, had many godly kings who pursued after God and loved God, and they were spared the wrath of God much longer. They made it all the way to 586, when ultimately King Nebuchadnezzar well, conquered them in the nation of Babylon. They went to 70 years of exile. So Jonah is one of the prophets, and several of the prophets are, are like this, one of the prophets to the northern kingdom. He was a contemporary of Hosea and Amos. He was trained probably in the schools of Elisha, a a school of prophets that the Old Testament speaks of who were training these prophets how to be prophets of God and proclaim the word of God, kind of like seminary in the Old Testament. 
And uh, legend says, Hebrew legend says, that Jonah may have been the son of the Shunammite woman that Elijah raised from the dead. No way of knowing. Just a cool little speculation. Most scholars believe that Jonah is an older man by the time God calls him to go to Nineveh to proclaim this message. And so Jonah has spent his life uh, being faithful to God, proclaiming the word of God, uh, having a passion for God, a passion for his people, a passion for the nation of Israel. Nineveh, on the other hand, was one of the main cities of the Assyrians. Um, Jonah comes with this message to Nineveh about 40 years before the Assyrians would conquer the northern tribes of Israel. In fact, at this time, Israel was actually strong, and Nineveh was actually kind of weak. The city of Nineveh had experienced a widespread plague, historians tell us, in 765 B.C. and 763. Two years later, they experienced an eclipse, which uh, pagan worshipers of false gods would, would read that as some kind of message from a god against them or, or for them. And so there was a widespread fear, widespread anxiety in the city. And it's in this context in which Jonah arrives. In fact, even though the nation was somewhat weak at this time, they were still the enemies of a lot of people because these people were cruel. These people were wicked. These people were mean. About 150 years from now, God would pronounce judgment on Assyria through the prophet Nahum. All right, Old Testament book, Nahum. I know everybody studied that in their quiet time this past week. Nahum says in Nahum 3, 1 through 4, Woe to the bloody city, talking about Nineveh, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nation with her whorings and people peoples with her charms. Assyrians were known for uh, conquering a people and bringing those people back to their land to assimilate them and to, to, to mix them with their people and then repopulating their land with a mixture of people. This is why later on you would have the Samaritans, the, the half-Greek Jews, were because the nation of Assyria came in and interpopulated the Jewish culture with themselves, Assyrians. They, they were known for their cruelty and that when they would conquer people, they would line them up put big fish hooks in their jaws, tie ropes to each hook, and march them back to their land so that if somebody tried to run away or somebody stumbled or fell, it would not go well with them. These were the people Jonah was called to go and proclaim God's message to. In fact, the language there in verse 2, their evil has come up before me. This was common Old Testament language where God would refer to a nation, and essentially what he's saying is, I've had enough. I've had enough. Now is the time of judgment. And interestingly, there's, there's no evidence that that's not how God still deals with nations, which is humbling for us as a nation. Knowing who God is, knowing how God works through his prophets, you fully then expect verse 3 to say, but Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. That's what you expect to read when God calls a prophet to do a task. But instead we get this shocker. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, I hate saying that word, away from the presence of the Lord. It's hard to express how shocked, you don't don't really see another prophet of God 
hearing God's command and running from it like this. Like you have Moses called by God to go to Egypt and free his people and Moses is hesitant, but it's mainly because Moses is, is fearful. All he sees is his inadequacies and weaknesses. He doesn't see God empowering him. So God assures him, I'm going with you. He gives him Aaron to be his mouthpiece and, and the rod of Moses to kind of symbolize the power of God. But you don't see a prophet of God look right in the face of God when God tells him to do something and just, just go the opposite way. So, so the question is, why? Some people think, well, it must have been because he was afraid. Like, if God called us to go to Tehran, the city, capital city of Iran, or to Poyong, the capital city of North Korea, or, or maybe the, the city where ISIS lives in more than any other city, and preach the gospel, walk, walk down the streets of those cities and say, God's about to judge you in 40 days, like, we would be, uh, well, you sure, God? You know, did I have some bad Mexican food last night? Are you sure this is the Spirit of God speaking? Because you know you're not coming back from that trip, right? You know you're going to be arrested, possibly killed. So Jonah knows he goes to the, the capital city or one of the main cities of his enemies and proclaims this message from the Lord. He, this might be it for him. He's, he's out. And some people think that's why Jonah was reluctant. But, but that's, that's really not the reason. Because according to, to chapter 4, so you've got to look a little bit into the story. You've got to know what's going on. According to chapter 4, we see that Jonah was not afraid of failure or death. Jonah was afraid of success. Jonah was afraid of success. Chapter 4, verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, the nationwide, the citywide repentance, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knew God's character and nature. And he knew that when God sent one of his prophets to proclaim this message to this city, that there was a chance God would not judge them, but that God would spare them. I mean, if God's going to judge them, then judge them. Why do I have to go tell them? Unless, unless this gracious, merciful God wants to leave the door open for their repentance and their saving. Chapter 4 is a crazy twist of the story. We'll walk through that in a few weeks, but just know this for now. Jonah ran because Jonah hated the Ninevites, and he did not want them saved. That's why he ran. You could call it racism, because it's rooted in the fact they were a different ethnicity. It could even be some form of religious discrimination, that they weren't Jews, uh, the people of God, they were Gentiles. Um, but in this group, I really don't want to spend time thinking about this as racism because we, we so quickly just let ourselves off the hook. Oh, it's racism? Well, I'm not a racist. Let's move on. Like, we're, we're, we're not those people. That's what, we, that's what we think. That's what we say. It's better it, and it hits closer to home if we think about this more. It is racism, but even, even more accurately as pride, arrogance, and self-righteousness. It's looking down on others because they are different. Because they are less than you, not as good as you, they are inferior to you. For whatever reason, if you need to make it about ethnicity and racism for you, then make it about that. But if it's intellectual, educational, economic, just whatever. Guys, sometimes this is a problem in the Crossing Church. Sometimes this is a problem for us. 
We can be arrogant and look down and be very critical about other churches that don't do things the way that we do them, that don't have it as figured out as we do. Um, We can look down and be very arrogant and critical about the way that most of us were raised in this room in traditional churches because they didn't have the gospel centrality that, that we geniuses have figured out. I say that sarcastically because we aren't the geniuses. We haven't figured it out, right? This is not our idea. We're riding on the backs of others and standing on the shoulders of others who come before us. But, but if we don't see that everything that's good about what we have right now is a gift of God's grace, if we don't see that, that everything we have that's good is, is by God's grace, only by God's grace, it's not because we're really gifted or really smart or really talented and figured it out, then, then we will dismiss God's grace that's already worked in our life before now. It's God's grace that most of us were raised in homes where we were first taught about Jesus and first led to understand who God is. But they, they did so many things wrong. Can't we just dismiss that and not care about that? Well, wait till our kids come back. And they tell us one day everything that we didn't get right. I mean, we're already looking back 18 months and we're like, man, I wish we would have done that. I wish we would have done that. I wish we would have tweaked that. There's a bunch of stuff we're going to get wrong as we pursue this kind of church in our city. But it's by God's grace, all the steps that God used to bring us to him, to to bring us to a knowledge of him. God has got to crush this spirit in us. So that we can demonstrate the same grace to those outside of the crossing church that he's demonstrated to us. So that we can demonstrate the same grace to each other that he's demonstrated to us. It has to start with us as leaders. And so when we talk about what other churches are doing and we immediately go to how many jokes can we make about that. Then we need to repent. And so I'm doing that right now. Like Monday night, we were making way too many jokes about what we experienced at that associational meeting. And that's not right. That's not who we want to be. We need to be more gracious. This grace has to flavor how we talk about churches who maybe don't do everything exactly like we do it, but that doesn't mean it's awful and bad. In their own way, they're pursuing Jesus. They're spreading the love of Jesus. They're sharing the gospel of Jesus. And we need to encourage that. Yes, we need to criticize false gospel preaching. Yes, we need to criticize and be very careful of religious hypocrisy. But hypocrisy is not trying to do what's right and failing. That's all of us. Hypocrisy is intentionally deceiving, manipulating. And we have to identify that carefully. We look at Jonah and we dismiss him as a racist and we become very haughty because we're not racist. Yet we look down on and we dismiss people around us because they're not as awesome as we are in their understanding of the gospel. They aren't as awesome as we are in our marriages. They're not as awesome as we are in our sophisticated grasp of movies and music and culture and and what's really cool. They don't parent as well as we do. They don't look as good as we do. They don't think as well as we think. And when we do that, we struggle to demonstrate grace Just because people don't do things exactly the way that we think they should be done. 
Guys, there is a lacking of grace in the crossing church. Sometimes you can be a hard people to preach to because of that. I don't, I don't fear somebody else preaching in our pulpit because of false teaching because I think we would pick up on that and take care of that real quick. I fear other people preaching in our pulpit because of how we would treat them. Without grace. And the arrogance and the pride and the self-righteousness that can mark us at times. It's not all the time. And that we can demonstrate to others it's the same heart attitude that Jonah had about the Ninevites. He thought they were beneath him. He didn't care about them. He did not love them. And one of my prayers constantly for us, especially in this series, but always is for God to crush our pride, to overwhelm us with his grace so that we can generously, graciously pour it out on each other, pour it out on our city that leads to joy and delight because we have a Father in heaven who loves and delights and has joy in pouring out his grace generously on us all the time. And we, in turn, can spread that to others. God commands Jonah to go. Jonah runs because he hates these people. He's filled with pride and arrogance. And in this response to God's command, you get the essence of sin. You get the essence of sin. Sin is breaking a command of God, a rule of God, yes. Sin is falling short of God's glory, yes. Sin is worshiping the creation and not the creator, yes. But sin is deeper than even that. The essence of sin is a failure to trust in the God who loves us unconditionally. Sin is the failure to trust in a God who loves us unconditionally. It's not believing He loves us. It's not trusting that He loves us. It's not believing He is for us. It's not believing His commands are for our good. It's not us trusting Him. That is sin. Adam and Eve tempted in the garden to eat of the fruit. Tempter comes along and says, did God really say? Did God really mean? God's just trying to withhold something from you. Keep you from something good. That's why he gave you that rule. And Adam and Eve believed him. They didn't trust God, that God was for their good by giving them that command. This lack of trust in God's love as the essence of sin can be found in the expression, Jonah was running from the presence of the Lord. Three times in the first ten verses this is mentioned. Well, what does it mean to run from the presence of the Lord? What does it mean to run from the presence of a God who is omnipresent? He's everywhere. How do you do that? So obviously this is not speaking of spatial presence. Like my presence right now spatially is right here in this little square. Right? That's not what it's speaking of because God is everywhere, omnipresent. This is a, a, a presence that is relational, that is intimate relationally. And, and you see that in the, the original language because the word that's translated for presence of the Lord speaks of face-to-face intimacy, right? This is a, an intimacy, a presence that comes from knowing someone. We, we get this, like when somebody dies, we say something like, they will always be with us. Well, what we mean is, Hopefully, this person will live on in our memories and our stories and our thoughts. We don't mean they become our guardian angel. We don't mean they're going to watch over us from heaven. We don't mean, I hope we don't mean something like that, right? But in our, in our hearts, in our stories, in our songs, in our, in our tales, they will live on. Their presence will remain with us. Why? Because we had a relational intimacy with them. 
It's, it's the same thing uh, with my wife. Jennifer can't always be with me spatially. Her presence is not always around me spatially. I wish it was, but it can't be, right? We have jobs, we have responsibilities. But Jennifer's presence goes with me wherever I go so that I'm, I'm not tempted to flirt with other women, not because Jennifer is standing right there, not because she's hired a private eye and she's always watching me. It's not because she has people who are going to report to me or she's bugging my phone and is listening to everything I do. It's not any of that. It's because there's a relational intimacy that goes with me wherever I go. And to, to flirt with another woman would be to break a vow to, to, to hurt Jennifer, even though she's not there, because I'm sharing something with another person that I can only share with her. Because God alone has given us that kind of relationship. So I live in the presence of my wife. She goes with me everywhere because of our relational intimacy. We have an even greater relational intimacy with our Father in heaven. His love for us is unconditional. It's always being poured out on us. So when we sin, we step away from this relational intimacy. We live as though that relational intimacy doesn't exist, thereby expressing a lack of trust in God. Because of how Jonah felt about the Ninevites, he knew that God sending him would, be, would mean God was sparing them. He didn't believe that was the best course of action. He didn't trust that God knows best even for his enemies. And because he didn't trust God, he wanted them dead. He ran from God's command. He ran from God's presence. He ran into sin. He trusted himself. He knew what was best. And if God was going to judge them, and if I don't go warn them, then they're dead. And that's good. Because I know better than God knows. And so Jonah runs to Joppa to get a, a ship to Tarshish. He buys a ticket. He boards the ship. Notice there's nothing illegal about his actions. Running from God does not mean you always end up in prison. A lot of people are sitting on church pews this morning. Good law-abiding citizens that are running from God. A lot of speculation on where Tarshish was. Some think it was as far away as Spain. Wherever it was, it was definitely away from God's call, away from God's presence. And when we don't trust God, we run into sin. There will always be a ship ready to take us to Tarshish. It's in our flesh. It's in our world system. Tarshish is calling us every day to pull us away from trusting and resting in our Father's love for us. Christian, your Father loves you all the time. All the time. Believe that. Trust that. Rest in that. Because He loves you, He gives you commands to obey for your good. So He calls you to do something that's potentially difficult, even dangerous. Trust that it's for your good. Something you don't want to do because it's hard. It's for your good. And so trust Him that if you walk it out, it's going to be for your good, no matter what price you have to pay to walk it out. Trust Him. Don't assume you know better than Him and run away from His presence by not trusting Him. Non-Christian. God loves you. God has a desire to save you, for you to know him and find your ultimate joy and hope and value in him. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Find salvation in Jesus alone. This is God's desire for you. 
What's amazing is, despite Jonah's lack of love, his racism, his hatred for these people, despite his lack of trust in the God who loves him, God graciously pursues him. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. You might see this storm as God's judgment or God's wrath about against Jonah, but, but it's actually God's grace. I mean, think about it. If God has ordained a purpose that Jonah is going to be in Nineveh, and we know that's what he purposed because that's what ended up happening. This is what God desired. Jonah would be in Nineveh preaching. God would save the city. If God had purposed that that was what was going to happen, and now Jonah goes and boards himself on a ship, how is God going to get him to Nineveh? Like, he can't send the Coast Guard, can't send a helicopter out there to pick him up. So, so how is God going to get him off that ship? Like, if, if God simply was trying to turn him around, then why didn't he, like, send a bear or a lion when he was walking to Joppa to chase him to Nineveh? Why did God wait until he was on the ship to send a storm and a fish to get him eventually to Nineveh? Like, could it be that... God is working something out in Jonah that even Jonah didn't realize needed to be worked out. That God desired for Jonah to be around certain people that he hated so much he would disobey the command of God and run and get on a ship, something Hebrews did not do, to run from God. So God allowed him, ordained that he would be around these Gentile pagans that he hated in order to learn from them and through them Something Jonah needed to learn before God could use him to preach to Nineveh. Could God really have been in control of this whole thing, like all along? Is God really that sovereign? You see, as is always the case with God, God calls, God equips. God called Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh, but God whose sovereignty shines in this story like like nothing else, he's not surprised Jonah ran. Like it didn't shock him. Where are you going? What are you doing? God knew Jonah would run. That was part of his plan because there was a work God had to do in Jonah before Jonah could preach to Nineveh. And as you know from chapter 4, there is more work God had to do in Jonah. It's the same grace of God that shows up when he sends storms in our life. The storm he sent to go get Jonah is the same types of storms he sends in our life to come get us. There's a work that God desires to do in us that can only be accomplished in storms. Like, it's not hard to be a Christian when everything is going right, right? When our life is a Disney World commercial. It's not hard to be a Christian on those days. It's easy. Life is good. It's fun. It's happy. The sun's shining. The kids are happy. Their paychecks are rolling in. All is well. But there is a work that God wants to do. Because the question for us is, do we love and trust God because he is allowing everything to go our way? Or do we love and trust him because of who he is? Like, that's a constant question we have to answer. You you don't get to a day and you're like, okay, I saw that. Next. That's a constant debate in our heart. Do I love God for what he gives me, how he protects me and blesses me? Or do I love God? Period. And storms will reveal the true nature of your faith. Do you love and trust God because of who he is or because of what he's done? Here's the thing. God knows the true nature of your faith in him. Right? He knows if you're treating him like a good luck charm. He knows if you really love him or if you're just manipulating him to get him on your side. 
So the storm is not for God to find out something. The storm is for us and those around us to find out something. The true condition of our heart and our love for him. And whatever storm God ordains for your life, you have to believe that, that, that God is ordaining that by the permission of your loving Heavenly Father. It does not show up in your life apart from His permission, His ordaining, His using that. He is not surprised when you end up in the boat in a storm. The purpose behind it all is the truth of Romans 8, 29. I didn't put this on the slide, but we know this passage. God Loves us for those whom he's called and predestined. He's working all things for the good of those that he loves in that way. For he, in love, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So, to those who are, love God and are called according to his purpose, this is not a promise for everybody, it's for his children. He's working all things, good and bad, for our good, for his glory, to make us like Jesus. Because that's what, that's what he desires for us, to conform us to the image of his son, to see the image, the new image of Jesus recreated in us, for us to experience this new creation. Everything we encounter, good or bad, is intended to conform us to his image, to see this image come out. That's the purpose that God ordains in life, in the good and the bad. There, there is work that God wants to do in the good, right? It's sometimes it's harder to see, but there's also work that God can only do in the storm. And so we have to go through them. So wherever you're at this morning, is all, is all well? Are you, are you good? This is a good day? Excited about lunch? Excited about nap, football, whatever? It's a good week? You're excited about next week? I mean, is life good for you? Good. Don't become arrogant and proud. Don't start taking credit for all of this. Don't puff up your chest and say, look at me how awesome I am. Stay humble. It's only by God's grace that it's good right now. Only by His grace. And is it bad? I mean, like, is, is it really not good right now? Where, where you're at, right here, where you're sitting in your heart, in your life. Like, this is kind of a refuge for a little while because of what you've got to go back into. Trust that your Father does not intend to crush you. Your Father does not intend to crush you. He intends to grow you, to build you, so that more and more your trust and faith is in Him. And your love is in Him. Period. Because He's a good Father. As He's demonstrated through His Son. He's given you life, sustained your life, and saved you. His love for you is not tied to material blessing or physical health or everyone liking you all the time or there being perfect peace and goodness at all the time in your life. His love for you is tied to His character and His nature and the personal work of Jesus. And it's constant. And He desires for you and I to have faith and trust in Him, not tied to His blessings, but tied to Him so that you can lose everything. And He is still satisfying. And He is enough. That's where God's always bringing us. Because we're always tempted to love the gift and not the one who gives the gift. And so how you respond to this gracious pursuit of you? How will you respond to this gracious pursuit of you? There's a few options that we see in the text. First, you have the sailor's response. They are scared to death. And they begin to call out to their gods. It must have been an incredible storm for these sailors to be that scared. They begin to call out to their varied gods, the god of the sea, the god of the wind, the god of the rain, the god of the sun, the moon, or whatever. Nothing is helping. So what you see there in verse uh, 5, you see an irreligious response to God's pursuit. 
They turn to their false gods or idols to save them. Aren't you glad that we're so much more intelligent today that we don't believe in multiple gods like the sun, the moon, the rain, the wind, and and that we don't put our faith in things like money and power and control and prestige and accomplishments and uh, comfort and pleasure and family and etc., etc.? Those backwards pagans, man, idiots. We all have our default idols, the idols we naturally run to apart from the Spirit of God working in us. It's whatever we root our identity in, our joy, our value, our worth, our significance. And as long as life is good, often our idols are not exposed. Therefore, God often purposes for storms to come into our life to expose our idols. We need to see them and we need to deal with them, right? When we go through storms, it's the failure of our idols to save us, protect us, that help expose the idols. So, like, if my idol is my job and my success, then what happens when I'm not always a success? What happens when I don't do a good job? What happens when I lose the job and the company folds? If my value and worth and significance and joy are tied to this job and my success is in this job and it's gone, what happens? If, if I worship the idol of pleasure and comfort and bad times come, and so I, I turn to pleasure and comfort to save me and give me joy, and so I eat too much and drink too much and sleep too much and watch too much TV so that I can escape from the pain of life, then what happens when I wake up out of my carbohydrate coma or wake up out of my drunken stupor and my problems are still there? My idols have not saved me. They have let me down again. I only escaped my problems temporarily. If I worship my kids and how awesome they are, what happens when my kids are exposed as not being as awesome as I think they are? Or what happens when they get old enough that they don't think I'm awesome? What happens if they get old enough or worse yet and they walk away from our parenting and say, that's not for me. If if, if, If those are my idols and parenting is my idol, then I am crushed. I'm what Tim Keller calls, I'm experiencing an eternal implosion. I'm just breaking down inside of me. We all have default idols we naturally turn to that we root our significance, worth, value, and joy in other than God, and because God loves you, he pursues you with a storm to expose those idols because when they fail you, and they always will, then your Father will be there to save you. So where is your significance, value, worth, and joy placed this morning? There's only one God who can bear the weight of our identity and never fail us. But the irreligious response to God pursuing us is just to double down on the idols. Just call out to your false gods more, run to your false gods. Like right now, some of you may be doing that. Like you know God is chasing you. And you're thinking, man, if I could just get to lunch, man, what am I going to have today? God, oh, the food's going to be so good. If I can just get to my, my bed, have a nap. If I can just, I got so much to do this week at work. If I just, I gotta, let me just go ahead and start organizing everything that this week, because I want to have a really good week and do well. But you also have a religious response to God's pursuit. Not turning to idols, but treating God like an idol. You see this as the story continues. Somebody stumbles upon this guy below, somehow sleeping through all of this. Notice that this is not the peaceful sleep of being in the center of God's will that Jesus demonstrated in the Gospels where he was asleep on a boat in a storm over which he had sovereignty and would soon wake up and prove he has sovereignty over. That's not this kind of sleep, which is interesting 
Because some Christians look to this kind of peace and sleep as one of the primary determiners of God's will in their life. I prayed about something, I have a peace, I'm able to sleep at night. So did Jonah. Is that really what you want to base God's will on? You have this mystical feeling of peace or being able to sleep at night doesn't always mean you're in the center of God's will. It might mean like Jonah, you're in the center of your will and you like it because it's comfortable and good. Some even think that this sleep he was experiencing was a much deeper sleep, a sleep of escape, maybe brought on by guilt and depression because he knew he was running from God. Remember, as Jonah confesses here in chapter 1 and chapter 4, Jonah, he really knew who God was. This was not a, a foolish, immature believer. He had a very orthodox understanding of God. He knew what he was doing and ran from God. And to run from this God was a heavy thing. In fact, the term translated sleep is the same term translated sleep when God put Adam to sleep to remove a rib, which hopefully Adam was a very deep sleep. Very deep sleep that may indicate some kind of extreme guilt, shame, depression, like an escape. Whatever the case, they're not going to let him sleep through this. So they say, arise and call out to your God. Interesting, same exact language God used to Jonah in, chapter, in verse 2. Arise and go to Nineveh. He hears it now from these people that he hates. Arise and call out to your God. Haunting for him. They were desperate. Help us. They cast lots. Whose fault is this? Casting lots, kind of like reading tea leaves or drawing straws. They questioned Jonah when the lots fell on him. Who are you? Where are you from? What have you done? Jonah says, I serve this God called, in the original language, Yahweh. Right? This is the special covenantal name of God that God revealed to Moses when Moses asked God before he went back to Egypt, if they asked me who sent me, what should I tell them? And God says in Exodus 3, tell them that I am that I am sent you, Yahweh. Special revelation of God to his covenantal people. Just a little side note, when you read in the Old Testament, depending on your translation, depending on your Bible actually, if you see L-O-R-D, Lord in all caps, behind that word is the name of God, Yahweh. And that's what you have here. Jonah says, I am a servant of Yahweh, the special covenantal name of God. So Jonah said he is a servant of this Yahweh, this God who made the sea and dry land, this God who's not like their gods, where you have this one God of the sea and one God of the land. There's this, this Yahweh God who seems to be over everything, the God above all gods, the God who controls and made everything. Now they are really scared. Jonah's telling us to throw him over the boat. Well, what if this Yahweh God gets mad at us and kills us for that? So let's just row a little harder. Let's try a little harder to get back to land. We can't do it. Okay, Yahweh, if you really are who you say you are, we're going to do what this guy says, but don't hold it against us. And they pick him up and chuck him over the side. And the storm stops. You see, this response is a religious response. Jonah revealed to them a higher God above their gods. Okay, then, how do we make this God happy? We've done all these things to make our gods happy. Now what do you want us to do to make this God happy? How do I earn his favor and blessing and protection? What do we need to do, Jonah, so they could start treating God like one of their false gods? And guys, we can do the same thing. God is real. God is pursuing me. All right, I better start doing something. All right, I'm going to start reading my Bible. I'm going to come every Sunday. I'm going to go to DNA every week. I'm going to go to MC gatherings. Whenever we have them, I'm going to be the first one there whenever we do mission. I'm going to start praying. I'm going to start memorizing scripture. I'm going to start fasting. I want to do all these things to show God how much I love him, to earn God's favor, keep God's flavor, get God's protection, have things go well in my life. And that is just as awful a response as the irreligious response. 
So your relationship with God becomes rooted in what you do or what you have done. Well, then God has to love me. He has to bless me, protect me, because I've been following him all these years. Look at my track record, God. I've got a sash with pins on it from Sunday school, right? I've been a member of this church. I've given and sacrificed so much. I've done everything he's asked of me. It's a fear-based relationship. I've got to do all these things so God will still love me and be good to me. And as long as I do these things, God has to be in my debt and treat me well because of my track record. And so your obedience is not genuine obedience motivated by love and trust. It is manipulative obedience. Resentful obedience. Therefore, what is the right response? And where do we see that in the text? The right response is not you saying to God, I will do anything to get your blessing, favor, and protection. That's not what God asks. God asks for us to rest in, to be satisfied in, to find joy and identity in Him and His love for us. God wants us to give, God wants to give us Himself. Religion is, I love God. If, and the one thing God wants is for you to love Him. How can we do that? It's when we put our focus not on ourselves, what we've done or haven't done, but when we put our focus off of ourselves onto Him, who He is and what He's done for us through Jesus Christ and the gospel. Jonah finally begins to turn. You know, when I've, I've preached this book before and I've studied this book before. When I've read it before, I really began to, to see that our thought that Jonah's repentance began to happen in chapter 2 when he's in the fish. Like, and that would pretty much straighten anybody up, right? But you begin to see Jonah move away from selfishness to selflessness here by finally thinking about somebody other than himself. He knows that God is pursuing him. He doesn't know what God was going to ultimately do. He doesn't know God had a fish underneath the waves. He has to believe when he goes over the side of that boat, he's going to death. Right? But he is willing to give his life in sacrifice for the safety and lives of these pagan Gentile sailors whom he hates. And their response when he goes into the water and the storm stops is also fear. They've been afraid before, but now this is a different type of fear. This is not a fear as in you're scared, you're cowering in fear, but this is a deeper fear of reverence and of awe. In fact, they worship Yahweh, not because then of what he could do for them, but because of who he was. This, this is real fear. Not a fear that makes you hide in the corner, but in awe and a wonder at God's amazing power and love that is sacrificial and substitutionary. They just saw it happen, right? You know, these sailors, they don't know about the fish, they don't know about Nineveh. They, all they knew was that this man, this servant of Yahweh, goes over the side of the boat and the storm stops. That's all they knew. Using a little bit of inspired imagination, You had to believe that they they might have told this story to a few people, right? It passed this along. And that this story in an oral culture would be passed along from generation to generation for for quite a while. What if, you almost wonder if some 700 years later when the gospel makes its way to some of these small shipping villages, 
maybe finds some of the descendants of these sailors and they hear the story of this man named Jesus and his love and his sacrifice so others would be saved, that these people could say, hey, we've been kind of sharing a story like that for quite a while. Jesus himself saw himself in the story of Jonah, Matthew 12, 38 through 41. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus went through the real storm of God's wrath, but he was not saved like Jonah. He sank. He sank for us that we would be saved. Jonah did not experience the full wrath and judgment of God. Jesus did. And we don't have to either because Jesus did that for us. Just as the storm exposed Jonah's idols in sin, so also, I hope and I pray, our idols and sins are exposed this morning. And just as Jonah found God's grace and mercy beneath the waves that would give him life, so also today, if you repent and trust in Jesus and his willing, loving sacrifice for you, God's grace and mercy are ready to swallow you up as well so that you will walk with Jesus and love God and rest in his love for you always. Father, we are grateful. Grateful for what you've done. It's amazing, overwhelming that this ancient story would be such a clear demonstration of your love for us, your love for all people. The person and work of Christ So however that needs to do work in our midst today, we pray that your spirit would do work. That we would be a people confessing sin, repenting of sin, turning and trusting in the all-sufficient, all-powerful Savior that is Jesus Christ. Finding life, finding love, finding forgiveness, finding grace. And it would so overwhelm us, it would flow out of us onto all those around us as individuals and mostly as a people. Do your work, Father. We ask you, we plead with you in the name of your strong, powerful Son, Jesus. Amen.